afternoon. Man, thank you all so much for being here, for worshiping together today. It's beautiful. You're beautiful. Man, it's just great to be, great to be here. Um, Man, we're just excited to get started in this new series. We've kind of put the holidays all together, so Thanksgiving and Christmas together in this generous life. So it's exciting that we get to explore the narratives of, of these individuals as they, you know, as we talk about generosity and the, and the, the Christmas story and all the things that work together. And, and I'm just really thrilled uh, that I get to start it off. It's a great honor and it's wonderful. And so my prayer is that, you know, as we go through these series, as you come every week, as you join online, that, that you're able to reimagine like what it truly means to experience um, this generous living and what it means to live with thankfulness as we go through this. So, so we're starting out today with the story of Hannah. And it's found in 1 Samuel. And that's, that's where we're going to be, you know, that's our biblical basis. And, uh, and then there's another thing that I have, um, that I'm going to be pulling from for, uh, for a lot of this sermon. And, and, and that's because when I was reading through the story of Hannah, it reminded me a lot of the writing of Anne Lamott. And, and you may have heard of her. You may be familiar with her work. I discovered her when I was training as a hospital chaplain, and it really spoke. Um, it spoke to what I was experiencing. It spoke to what the people I was meeting uh, were, ex- were experiencing. And so um, many, because many of her books explore, like, um, how individuals can transform their lives from, from a place of brokenness, a place of um, troubled, to a place of feeling whole and a place of feeling connected. And how, um, and, and she chronicles like the journey, how people get there. So in Lamott's case, she, you know, she was an alcoholic. She um, was addicted to drugs and, and she finally hit rock bottom. And after she had reached that lowest point, that's where she found faith. And so uh, she's written a lot of books, but one of them um, that I'm going to be using a lot kind of throughout this is called Help, Thanks, Wow, Three Essential Prayers. And she explores in this book what it means to ask for guidance, to ask for gratitude, and to, and to express wonder in our lives. And so as I was reading the story of Hannah, I couldn't help but see the parallels and see um, a lot of this imagery from, from being troubled and broken to finding healing and connectedness. And, and um, so speaking about her book uh, in an interview, she said, I've heard people say that God is the gift of desperation. And there's a lot to be said for having reached the bottom where you've run out of all your good ideas or plans or everyone else's behavior or, um, or, or how you have to save and fix and rescue or how you have to get out of whatever huge mess you've found yourself in sometimes of our own creation. And when you're done, um, she says, you can take a long, like, quivering breath and all you can say is help, help. People say help without actually believing anything or anyone hears, but we, with a, with a Christian tradition, with understanding that there is a God who is powerful and um, God who is all-knowing and God who is all-seeing, that there is someone listening when we cry for help. There is someone ready to help as soon as we say the word, but this, this great prayer for help is one of the hardest to pray because we have to admit defeat. I don't know about you, but I definitely do not like admitting defeat, like that I, I, I have reached the end of my capacity and I now need to call on 
other people or other things to reinforce because I've reached my limit, right? And that's what she's saying here. Like, it's the hardest prayer because we admit defeat. And in that moment, we have to surrender to God. And surrendering to God, I don't know about you, but that can be a very difficult thing. It's kind of tricky because we want to surrender, but we want to keep on holding really tight, but we want to surrender because we want God to fix it, but we also want to hold really tight to whatever it is. And here in Samuel 1, we find this compelling story of this troubled Hannah admitting defeat and surrendering fully, and she shows us what that looks like. And so for a little bit of background and a little bit of context, I'm actually going to go straight into the scripture of 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, starting there in the, in the New Living Translation. There was a man named Elkanah who lived in Ramah in the region of Zaph in the hill country of Ephraim, and he was the son of Jeroham, whoops, Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zaph of Ephraim. There's a lot of names. It's fine. They establish this, right, because he's an important person. It lists his lineage and his heritage and the people he's connected to because he's an important person, and the Bible wants us to know that. It also wants us to know, going on in verse 2, Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Penina, and Penina had children, but Hannah did not. Each year, Elkanah would travel to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of heaven's army at the tabernacle. The, the priests of the Lord at the time were the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. And you might recognize their names. You might have heard them before. They're like, they're known for uh, almost what they did, what they, they were, yeah, known for not being helpful people at all. So on the, uh, going on in verse 4, on the days Elkanah presented his sacrifice, he would give portions of meat to Panina and each of her children. And though he loved Hannah, he would give her only one choice portion because the Lord had given her no children. Now, deviate from the text just a little bit because we understand this to mean um, he loved Hannah. He loved Hannah more than Penina, and, and, and so he would give her a choice portion, or some translated, he would give her a double portion, but, but it was very clear that he was um, caring for her even in her barrenness. And this made Penina so jealous and so angry and made life miserable, I would imagine, for the family. So moving on in verse 6, so Penina would taunt Hannah and make fun of her because the Lord had kept her from having children. Year after year, it was the same. Panina would taunt Hannah as they went to the tabernacle. Each time, Hannah would be reduced to tears and not even eat. Why are you crying, Hannah? Elkanah would ask. Why aren't you eating? Why be downhearted just because you have no children? You have me. Isn't that better than having 10 sons? I'm kind of glad the scripture doesn't record anything that's said after that. <laughs> It's fine. <laughs> but I do believe that some context and, and background to the story always makes for a richer understanding of the narrative. So it's helpful to understand that, that around this time, the Hebrew scripture records the book in the Bible that immediately precedes this is the book of Judges. And the last text in the book of Judges, it's Judges 21:15. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. Because the, the tumultuousness of the season wasn't simply in Hannah's life. It wasn't in her family life. It wasn't in her childless status. But it was part of a far more tumultuous season 
that uh, was being experienced by the children of Israel, the children of God, because everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Life in this season would have been so chaotic without any spiritual leadership or, or spiritual role models or, or anyone guiding and directing and the, the people that were in charge that were supposed to be those leaders were failing miserably. The spiritual lives and the landscape of God's people at that time would have been as barren as Hannah's womb. Absolute disconnect. And, and if you read further on in 1 Samuel after the scripture we cover today, the narrative shows that you know, the practice of worship at Shiloh had been so completely perverted, it had, had devolved into this like meaningless tradition and this meaningless ritual. It completely fallen away from actual true worship of the true God. In fact, the sons of Eli, those two priests that were, that were there, Hophni and Phinehas, they were the ones charged with spiritual guidance of God's people. They're described in scripture as greedy and oppressive, and they were anything but spiritual and righteous, and you can read more about their stories and how hurtful they were to the people who came there. In that time, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and it was, it was such a far cry from what was right in God's eyes. So now there was this season at hand in this time of Hannah and Samuel, there was a season at hand for God to be able to, to do new things for his people again. And it, and it wasn't just new things that he wanted to do for the nation of Israel, it was, it was new things that he wanted to do for Hannah. He has new things he wants to do for us. And one can tell from the narrative as we read through it that Hannah's life was probably stricken with, with disappointment, with misery. Isn't that the way it is where the relationships, the family, they always cause the most grief. They always cause the most, most difficult season because they're closest to us. We love the most and so it hurts the most when things go awry. So in addition to this very significant setback of, you know, leaving Elkanah, her husband, with no heir to his, uh, to his wealth or, or um, name to carry on, you know, without leaving him a ch uh, with no child to carry on his name, this was also seen as kind of a, a punishment in that time, in that culture. Having no children or not being able to have children was seen as like punishment from, directly from God for some sin that, that they must have committed. And it made barrenness like this, this moral failure, which it's not. But wherever Hannah went, I can imagine, you know, there, there would be stares at her. You know, she's the one. She has no kids. You know, God doesn't love her. There must have been whispers about her morality, and I, and I imagine her condition must have felt like a double, doubly heavy and doubly shameful blow because, because even as she was childless, she also loved God fully and trusted him. So the stories people told and the lies they told were doubly shameful for her. But we know that Hannah was, we know that Hannah was a person of devout faith. She and Elkanah went to worship every year. The Bible tells us that. And, and this scholar James Ellis writes, he's a, he's a religious and cultural historian. So he writes, Elkanah and Hannah were devout people of faith. And Hannah was probably aware that in the Hebrew Bible, a woman's barrenness could serve actually as a harbinger of the miraculous birth of a divinely chosen male leader. You'll see what I mean. 
The three great matrons of ancient Israel, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, they were all described as initially barren. And yet each one of these women went on to conceive a son who played the key role in the Hebrew age of the patriarchs. Sarah and Abraham were the parents of Isaac. Rebecca and Isaac were the parents of Jacob. Isaac and Jacob carried on Abraham's bloodline and, and they were crucial to, to the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and Sarah that, that um, from his offspring, all nations on earth would be blessed. And Hannah would have been aware of this. This would have been part of the oral tradition. It would have been part of the, the scriptures that she knew from listening and hearing. And, and according to the biblical scholar, uh, Cynthia Chapman, in each of these biblical narratives, barrenness actually serves as this literary and theological purpose to heighten the tension around a divine promise of fertility, marking that child divinely ordained leadership. And so, so Hannah and the birth of Samuel fit directly within this grand historical series of events as the story of God's people is woven in golden thread through the tapestry of time and the narratives of these people. And it's in this context that Hannah comes to the temple and offers the prayer of help. We can see her soul laid bare and her faith revealed as she addresses the Lord Almighty. And isn't it, isn't it the case where when we're, when we're left with no words and all we can say is help, that that is when we are at our most broken and at our most vulnerable and at our most, um, at our most uh, bare soul to Christ? We need an outside intervention. We need an outside help. Maybe, um, maybe the, 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 the diagnosis came back, maybe, and it, and it wasn't good, or, or maybe the, you know, the marriage is imploding, maybe the friendship is imploding, maybe the child has gone astray, or the, the child has a disease, or, or any number of things where we're totally and completely powerless without any control and no words except help. There must be a God that can hear. There must be a God that can do something about this. And so here is Hannah saying, help. There must be something that you can do, God. And so we read what happens next. As we move on in chapter 1, verse, verse 9, it says that once after a sacrificial meal while they were at Shiloh, Hannah got up and went to pray Eli the priest was sitting in his customary place beside the entrance of the tabernacle. Hannah was in deep anguish, crying bitterly to the Lord. And she made this vow, O Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. And he will be yours for his entire lifetime. And as a sign that he's been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. And as she was praying to the Lord, Eli watched her and seeing her lips moving, but hearing no sound, he thought she had been drinking. Must you come here drunk? He demanded, throw away your wine. No, sir, she replied. And I think it was that emphatic. No, sir. <laughs> I haven't been drinking wine or anything stronger, but I'm very discouraged and I'm pouring out my heart to the Lord. 
don't think that I am a wicked woman, for I've been praying out of great anguish and sorrow. In that case, Eli said, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant the request that you've asked of him. Oh, thank you, sir, she exclaimed. And then she went back and began to eat again, and she was no longer sad. Help. Help. As Anne Lamott writes, God is in the crying. God is in the tears, and those tears, they bathe us. Those tears in those moments, that's what cleanses us. In fact, Lamont says those tears hydrate the ground beneath our feet, and who knows what will grow out of that. Tears here are the baptism, and help is the prayer of surrender. And Hannah prays this prayer surrendering to God. In fact, prayer, I'd like to think of as taking a chance that against all odds and and past history and present events that we are loved and we are chosen. And Hannah, in that prayer, took that chance and negotiated with God for a son. And in her prayer to God for help, she surrendered the very thing that she had prayed for. She promised to to surrender the one thing that she desired most, the singular focus of her petition to God, that would be a son. And and Eli at the time, watching all of this, he, he, he might have had weak eyesight, but he also was not fully able to comprehend that Hannah had been pouring her soul out to God, mistaking her for a drunk because that was the state of depravity that the the people of Israel were in. They couldn't tell whether you were drunk or you were pouring your heart out to God. There was just no way to know because the connection with God was lost. But once Eli understands that, that genuine heart of prayer that she had, although he doesn't apologize, he does offer what sounds like this blessing to her. And maybe it was formulaic, maybe it was a ritual, or maybe he actually meant it. We don't know, but he said, go in peace and may God grant you what you have asked. And with that, Hannah exclaims, thank you, which is as much towards Eli as it is towards God. Thank you. Thank you. Or as we sometimes say, when some glimmer of hope catches our heart, we say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Because we have hope that that big prayer we prayed for help, that there is a glimmer of hope on the horizon, that the tides are turning in our favor and there is hope to be found. And that is what Hannah clings to. And so she goes on and we continue in verse 19. This is what they do next. The entire family gets up early the next morning and and went to worship the Lord once again. And they returned home to Ramah and then Elkanah slept with Hannah and the Lord remembered her plea. And in due time, she gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel. For she said, I asked the Lord for him. And the next year, Elkanah and his family went on their annual trip to offer sacrifice to the Lord and, and to keep his vow, but Hannah didn't go. And she told her husband, wait, wait until the boy is weaned. Then I will take him to the tabernacle and leave him there with the Lord permanently. Whatever you think is best, Elkanah agreed, which is probably wise. <laughs> 
stay here for now, and may the Lord help you keep your promise. And so she stayed home, and she, she nursed the boy until he was weaned. And, and when the child was weaned, Hannah took him to the tabernacle of Shiloh. They brought along a three-year-old, um, a three-year-old bull and, the, and a sacrifice for the sacrifice and a basket of flour and some wine. And after sacrificing the bull, they, they brought the boy Eli. They brought the boy to Eli. Sir, do you remember me? Hannah asked. I'm the very woman who stood here several years ago praying to the Lord. I asked the Lord to give me a boy, and he's granted my request, and now I'm giving him to the Lord. And he will belong to the Lord his whole life. And they worshiped the Lord there. And every time I read this passage, tears come to my eyes and my heart. I could not fathom giving up my son leaving him at such a young age in a strange place with strange people. So maybe he, was, maybe he was seven or eight, but most people think he was probably around three years old. That's not old enough. I leave my son to go to work, and his face just like melts into this very cute but very sad pout. Mama, 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 he doesn't want me to go. And I imagine Hannah leaving her son there. And I wonder if he said something similar. And I wonder how Hannah had the strength to let go, the strength to go on. And my heart breaks for Hannah and my heart breaks for Samuel. But this is the son that she prayed for and this was the promise that she made to God. She promised to return him to God. And what I find so astounding and so, so countercultural and so, so just groundbreaking and earth shattering is that instead of weeping in sadness and instead of dragging her feet and instead of expressing regret at this promise or living with bitterness, she offers another prayer. And it's a prayer of praise. It's a prayer of thanksgiving. It's a, gratitude, a, 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 a prayer of deep gratitude for what God has done for her. So we read in 1 Samuel and we move into chapter 2 to hear this prayer. Verse 1 says, Then Hannah prayed, My heart rejoices in the Lord. The Lord has made me strong. And now I have an answer for my enemies. I rejoice because God has rescued me. No one is holy like the Lord. There's no one beside you. There's no rock like our God. Stop acting so proudly, excuse me, so proud and haughty. Don't speak with such arrogance for the Lord is a God who knows what you've done and he will judge your actions. The, the bow of the mighty is now broken and those who stumbled are now strong. Those who are, were well fed are now starving and those who were starving are now full. The childless woman now has seven children and the woman with many children wastes away. The Lord gives both death and life. He brings some down to the grave but raises others up. The Lord makes some poor and others rich and he brings some down and lifts others up. He lifts up the poor from the dust of the ground. 
He lifts up the poor from the dust and the needy from the garbage dump. He sets them among princes, placing them in seats of honor. For all the earth is the Lord's, and he has set the world in order. He will protect, protect the faithful ones, but the wicked will disappear in darkness. No one will succeed by strength alone. Those who fight against the Lord will be shattered. He thunders against them from heaven. The judge... The Lord judges throughout the earth. He gives power to his king. He increases his strength of his anointed one. And in her song, Hannah transcends her own struggle and perfects this art of praying. Hannah's request for a son turns out to be part of her ongoing dialogue with God, a means to fulfill her spiritual needs and, and contribute to her people's history. Her spiritual journey and her walk through the whole range of prayer culminates with this song as the ultimate hymn of praise to God and gratitude. The psalm cautions people against excessive pride and celebrates God's ability to, to bring about change in human fortunes and lift people out of misery and suffering. Hannah's song is more than a personal prayer of thanksgiving. It's a victory song for the whole nation of Israel. And did you hear that part at the end of the song of, of her prayer about a king? She didn't know what a king was. Israel had no king. But Hannah's very own son, Samuel, would play such an important role in anointing Saul and anointing David and the line of David that would bring forth the Messiah because Hannah prayed and believed. So in this time of chaos, when all the people did whatever was good in their own eyes, all of that was about to change. In the time of barrenness and frustration, it would soon be replaced with order and peace and hope. And Hannah's story is just a short narrative in the bigger story of, of God and his kingdom, God and his plans for you and for me. Her faithfulness mirrors God's faithfulness. It sets a stage for, for transition. <sighs> Samuel, the child of Hannah's fervent prayer, the last of the judges, the prophet who identifies David as God's chosen ruler over his people. It is from David's line that another, another son will be born under miraculous conditions miraculous circumstances. And that mother echoes Hannah's prayer and you can read them side by side. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Mary's song reminds us that, that, that God raises up the lowly, brings down the mighty, fills the hungry with good things and sends the rich away empty. God's ways are not our ways. And God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's timeline may not meet my timeline. God's expectations are not my own, but his timing always meets our deepest need. And like Hannah, we can trust in that truth. And so I ask you in this story, who are you? Are you like Penina, the, the, the second wife, proud of her status, arrogant to those around her, those around us who don't, who don't have it as good as we do? Are we ungrateful for the gifts that God has given? He's free. 
freely given and provided to us. And if I'm honest, sometimes I fall into this category. Are we like Elkanah, who's, who's eager to do the right thing, but he's unsure of the right way to do it? So he follows similar rituals and says the things he thinks others want to hear, but never really gets close enough to God to bear the soul. Maybe, maybe we're like Eli, the priest who is no longer effective because he's lost touch with God. We once knew what it was like to follow obediently where God led us, but those days are gone and now we stumble along and can't tell the difference between a drunken revelry and a heartfelt prayer. But I ask you, can we be like Hannah? It seems so hard, the sacrifice is so great, but I think that's the key to Hannah's faithfulness. What made it possible for her to promise God, that she would give her son back to him if God would only let her have one because gratitude begins in our own hearts and then it dovetails into our behavior and it always, almost always makes us willing to be of service and that's where true joy resides. So as Hannah poured out her distress to the Lord, she fully believed that God would do the impossible. She knew it was just a matter of time God's time before her prayer would be answered. She carried that heart full of hope and that spirit full of wonder and, a, and, and, and thanksgiving. Wonder takes our breath away and it makes room for new breath. We should always stand in awe and say, wow, God. Wow is the praise prayer. And it's the prayer where we are finally speechless. So I ask you just bow your heads and we pray together, God Almighty. We know your timing is different than ours, but we know that we can place our faith and our trust in the true God. That where there is sorrow, where there is hopelessness, we can ask for help. That we claim thanksgiving for the things that you provide. And we are constantly in awe of who you are and what you do in our lives. Help, God. Thank you. Wow. Let's stand together and worship again.